Hello, this is your host, Dr. Casey Bradley, and welcome to Pig Progress's The Real P3 Podcast, a podcast dedicated to the producers around the world. In this week's episode, we're going to go up to Iowa and visit with Ben Greenfield. I got to know Ben from Twitter and enjoyed the interaction, and I loved seeing his posts and tweets about the different types of animals he was harvesting working in there. But what I didn't realize is Ben has a longtime connection to the pork industry in the state of Iowa, and he was ultimately what I'm going to call a contract caregiver. So he was responsible for taking care of wean-to-finish or finisher pigs, giving vaccinations, daily checks, loading and unloading, placing pigs, getting pigs off to a good start. So he's got a lot of great insights, not only from the new surge in my mind or the re-surge of homesteading and custom meat processing, but also his days as a wean-to-finish barn manager. So stay tuned. Well, hi, Ben. How are you doing today? I'm doing wonderful, Casey. Well, it's great to Thanks have you. Yeah, it's great to have you as well on the Roll P3. Would you mind telling the audience a little bit about your background? I grew up on a farm in central Iowa. My dad basically did row crop, corn beans. I was in 4-H. We showed chickens at the fair. He was too big with tight to buy us club calves like all of my other friends had. But it is what it is. And got into raising a couple pigs just randomly, raise those throughout high school, just make a you know little side hustle, make a little extra cash, and end up going to college to Ellsworth Community College in Iowa Falls. My degree there was swine management. That's why I went there. It was just a one-year program. I uh, really liked it. Stayed around another year, got a degree in applied science, started Managed in hog confinements while I was going to Iowa State. So I kind of put that on the back burner and did that full time for basically 15 years. I enjoyed it. Got a little burnout. It was long hours, you know, a lot of 12 hour days, getting pigs in at midnight, 2 a.m., shipping pigs out at 6 a.m., you know, just kind of a all day deal. And I started working out a locker after that. And then milk cows for a guy briefly and then moved to where I'm at now, which is in Gilbertville, Iowa, where I'm working at the locker here now. Well, that is pretty cool. So there was a couple of reasons why I wanted to have you on the Real P3 because I kind of wanted to go back to your days as a contract grower. And so kind of explain the position and how that works in the industry. You didn't own the pigs, you didn't own the facility, but kind of explain that role and kind of your responsibilities that you had in, in that type of position. Yeah. So you're, what you said, there was spot on. I was hired as an independent contractor. So companies, mainly I basically worked for one company, but they own the hogs. I worked for a couple farmers that own the barns, but the other ones were company-owned barns, and then they owned the pigs as well. So I was hired to show up, do daily chores, receive pigs, ship them out at market weight, minor maintenance, like major maintenance I was not in charge of, but vaccinations, 
power washing towards them. They actually started taking care of the power washing. So that was nice. But yeah, I was basically, I'd have maybe one person once a week show up, maybe once every two weeks show up, just to make sure that I was doing my job the correct way. Yeah. So did you have many bosses or just, I mean, you said you worked for one company, different farmers. How did that work from your direct report? What type of people or positions did you interact with on a weekly basis? Usually I wouldn't say daily when I, I switched to a different company. I maybe only talk to that boss once a month, but the farmer that actually owned the barn, I, I was more interactive with him. So he was paying me directly, but they were paying him. Mm-hmm. Before that, I worked for a different company where they were paying me directly. And I just kind of bring this up because when people try to understand how the U.S. swine industry works, there is a variety of ownership weight through co-ops, through shareholders, through company-owned, you know, Pharaoh to finish. And then, you know, there's in between with roles that you had um, that you were involved in the industry. And so it's kind of just wanted to explain that for people to understand that there's different people involved in different parts of our industry. Yes, there is. I know I have friends that are in cooperatives with uh, cell farms and then they'll get their pigs in as, you know, and then they'll go wean to finish with them. But then there's also, you got your bigger companies where it's 100% self-armed finish that they own every aspect of it. But at the same time, there's still those growers that they just own the barns themselves. And JBS, Swift, Smithfield, Tyson, Iowa Select, whoever, the farmer owns the barns and those companies own the pigs. So being the caretaker, you primarily worked with wean to finish facilities or was it a mixture of wean to finish and finisher type of facilities? I mainly did wean to finish. I did run a farm for a couple of years at the arena as a nursery. I had roughly a short 10,000 hogs at that farm. So it was every six to seven weeks, I get pigs in. Six, seven weeks later, I'd ship them out, wash the barns. Week later, I'm getting pigs back in again. That took a toll on me. That that was hard work. But primarily, wean to finish. Towards the end, I'd say I'd been out of the game now for right out of year. I think it was last July is when I stopped taking care of pigs. The Two years before that, I was doing feeder to finish. So I get in 45, 50, 60 pound pigs and take them all the way to market weight. That was a little easier. You're not dealing with younger pigs or more suspect to diseases. So it was less work, I should say. Yeah. So in today's market condition, you know, Post-weaning mortality is a main concern or high mortality levels. There's a lot of discussion around poor starting pigs and stuff. And we're talking to somebody who's lived it every day. Kind of walk us through what was successful or wasn't for you to starting pigs and, and really driving that health and well-being of your animals. Like what were some challenges you faced? What are some things you've learned along the way to adapt and, and manage that situation? 
well, you're, you're kind of at the mercy of the cell farms they come from, you know, if they're first positive PD, you know, mycoplasma is still a real big thing. So you're kind of at the mercy of what you get, but what I kind of learned what worked best for me, regardless of the health of the pigs was I'm a big believer in, uh, I call it mat feeding. We throw feed mats down underneath the brooders in fully slided barns. And I'd try to hand scoop feed on those mats twice a day just to get them started. So they know, okay, this is, this is feed. We just got off mama, you know, and run a lot of electrolytes throughout the water, through their water medicators. And having just a nice, dry environment, which me not owning the facilities and paying the bills, I'd like to keep the ventilation amped up a little more than it probably should have to keep the barns dry, which is bad for whoever's paying the LP bill because those heaters are going to be running the same time that the fans are. But as far as pig health... I never had an issue. Well, I shouldn't say never had an issue, but it it seemed to make things a lot nicer in there. I had a guy tell me one time, if you walk in a barn and your eyes start watering and you can't breathe, he goes, how do you think those pigs feel? They're, They're feeling the exact same way you are. And I really took that to heart. And I really think that helped me succeed quite a bit in managing, especially those younger pigs. What are some other challenges you had, I guess, with your your daily operations? You talked about being burnout. And we our number one problem, not only on the pig side, is obviously mortality and health status today, but we also have a massive labor shortage issue. You, you know, you have 15 years of experience and you walked away and not you're still part of our industry. We'll get to that part, the fun part about it, but kind of some advice I guess out there for producers and managers listening to this, like labor, what are we doing wrong to keep people like you or others wanting to stay in our industry? If there's farmers listening, they know it's, it's seven days a week. It's 24 hours a day. I'm not saying you're working 24 hours a day, but I had to sleep with my cell phone underneath my pillow in case I got a alarm call or I got a feed truck driver in the wintertime that's stuck, you know, at my farm, you know, stuff like that. That's what took a toll on me the biggest. As far as labor shortage, let's be honest, people don't want to work in it. It's hard work. No. So I don't know if people increase their pay, maybe, if that'd be more, you know, maybe people want to start doing it. But really, it's a young man's game. I don't know very many older guys that are still doing it. Well, I'd say I know a lot of guys like you or myself, we get out of the daily work. Uh, I've been working on a project and I'm reminded about how hard work this is, right? Bleeding sows, taking care of sows. And it's hard on the body. And, you know, you talk to different people. Everybody wants to talk about data analysis and sensors and all this. But yet nobody's coming up with solutions to make our lives easier on the farm. Exactly. And really, they're giving you more pigs. You talked about 10,000 pigs, nursery pigs, just for yourself to manage and and take care of every day. That's a lot of pigs to be under one person's care. 
Well, and the thing on top of that too, Casey, is I had two other farms on top of that. So my other two farms were wing to finish. So I, I went to three different farms every day. So I could have been choring 10,000, you know, 12 pound wing pigs. And then I guys turn around and go to a site that has market size pigs that are 300 pounds and oh crap, I got three deads. I got a drag out. And then at midnight, we're shipping pigs out to the packing plant. It's just, like I said, it's the young man's game, especially with the technology now. I know the last farm I had, we got one of those smart controllers where I can run it through my cell phone, which was cool because, you know, it's midnight and it's blizzard. Hey, I wonder what the temp is in the barn. I can get on it and says, okay, this barn's, you know, 68 degrees. This one's down to 58. You know, it that was kind of cool. But I know some of the older farmers, you know, my dad has a flip phone. He doesn't know how to run a computer, you know, stuff like that, mm-hmm. where the technology is really taken over, which I think is awesome. But it's just, just that intermediate stage of the transition. Yes. As from 2022, Pick Progress is proud to be teaming up with the Real P3 podcast. Professionals from around the globe already knew how to find Pick Progress as a reliable source of global and exclusive pig information through our website, newsletter, magazine, social media, and webinars. And now, in its 38th year of existence, there is no escaping. Your favorite pig media is prominently present in audio form as well. Find out more to access all podcast episodes and register for a free newsletter through www.pigprogress.net. Let's go back to the industry that you're working in today. You're part of the swine industry indirectly, but direct, I mean, you're finishing out our end product of working in a meat locker. Kind of explain the type of, I guess, meat locker. We could call it an abattoir. We could call it, you know, a slaughterhouse, however we want to talk about that. The type of one you're working in, because you're not, you know, you're not running a commercial speed operation. So kind of tell us a little bit about the, the meat locker that you work in today. Yeah, so I've worked at, uh, this is the second one I worked at. It's uh, privately owned. It's been established. It's been here for well over 50 years, I believe. I think roughly a week, we will slaughter around 12 beef and about the same with hogs, about 12. And we'll do hogs, we do those just in one day, and we can have 12 slaughtered. If we start at 7, I'd say we'd be done by by the noon hour. Mm-hmm. Maybe a little, little faster than that. And that's slaughter side. And then we also do a lot of retail where we'll get boxes of beef or pork or whatever in from, you know, JBS or whatever big packer. What Basically, whoever gives us the best price, I believe, is the way it works. I'm not the owner by any means. I work here. But mm-hmm. today we did three, uh, three lambs which is the first time since I've been here that we've done that. So that that was actually kind of neat, but then, you know, it's custom cuts. What if you're Joe Smith that lives down the road, Hey, I got a beef I want to bring in, you know, you book your date, bring it in. Okay. What cuts do you want? I want 
ribeyes, T-bones. I want my brisket, couple roast, everything else. I want to ground beef. Exact same with pork. I want my bellies for bacon. I want my hams smoked. Everything else, I want to go to sausage, bratwurst, brat patties, stuff like that. What types of pigs do you get in? Because I, you know, I'm always curious with local lockers. It's a lot of, I would imagine, for H pigs, backyard producers. Kind of what's the variety or types of pigs that come in um, compared to what you used to work with? Well, basically, what you just said, we get a lot of heritage breeds, camps. You know, 4-H kid stuff is big right now because it's county fair time, and then the rest are basically confinement pigs. We get a lot of belly ruptures from guys that they're, you can tell they're confinement raised pigs and they obviously must own them. The, the market right now or right now forever on belly ruptures has been crap. So they figured, well, we can take it here, get it butchered. Mm-hmm. We'll keep it for ourselves, which is, you know, good for them. I was going to say, I've ate a lot of belly ruptures in my day because they're free. <laughs> Essentially, because exactly. there's no market. Right. We do quite a bit of those. And I'm I'm actually pretty good at cutting around those things now just from doing it so much. But how much meat do you think you the, lose the from the belly ruptures? Not a lot. Basically, you're missing out on more bacon than anything. Probably like a big you know, packer plant can't take those because of the processes where like a custom shop like yours can like you said, you can cut around that and utilize those pigs still. Nailed it. Because what that's doing at the packing plant is it's slowing the line down. And they don't like that. Well, if we look at the PQA standards, technically those pigs, especially if it's dragging or has sores on it, technically they have to be euthanized. So I'm assuming you're not getting in the really the bad type of pigs into that market. No, no, you're you're exactly right. And I've been PQA certified since 2004. I mean, even if they have a sore on it, they should be euthanized. You know, we don't get ones that are the size of a basketball, but I mean, we get some that are maybe the size of a volleyball, but they're still intact. You know, their guts aren't hanging out, you know, stuff like that. We've done like emergency beef that this cow might have broke a leg. USDA says that beef has to walk. Same same with hogs. I know we're talking hogs, but I see mm-hmm. beef a lot too. But they have to walk off the trailer into our place before we euthanize it and then butcher it. I mean, that's that's the law that we follow, and it's pretty strict. USDA would shut us down in a heartbeat if we euthanized an animal outside in a trailer and drug it in. Like that's, we're getting shut down for probably a couple of weeks. So it's good to know that there's standards and being followed and things, but let's go back to belly ruptures a little bit from your experience managing these pigs to finishing. I mean, how frequent was that of a problem for you? How many pigs did you probably lose per batch with the, the umbilical hernia and the ruptures and, and things like that and prolapses? Towards the end, I'd say it, it was getting worse. And I don't know why. I think mainly because of what you're just talking about with the PQA deal. Our audits got very, very, very strict. 
as far as belly ruptures, if there was any scabs, same with uh, flank bites, that became a big issue. I know we ran a lot of apple vinegar through the water mm-hmm. to try to help. I don't think it helps, but they wanted to do it. Just running different stuff through the water to try to cure that from them biting. But belly ruptures, that's just one thing I never, if it's hereditary problem or I, I never got exactly how it got as bad as it did, but it, it seemed to progressively get worse over my 15 years of doing it. And also that's a, to me a good point to mention for people kind of learning, like what are the problems we face? Obviously we have mortality issues, health issues, and then we still are plagued with things like umbilical hernias and, and flank biting. And you mentioned on flank biting and stuff, we know we lose trim loss and this is, you know, the, I've had conversations on welfare and different things and we're really not quite sure about how much that's really costing us, but we're losing it as trim. What are some management strategies? You talked about ammonia, ventilation and things. How did you mitigate some of that in your flows or systems? Or what would you give suggestions of people struggling with that? Obviously, you're not a fan of apple cider vinegar, but any suggestions from your point to help mitigate those issues? Yeah, I think ventilation has a has a big thing to do with it. I'm no genius on it, but I've tinkered around with it. Like I said, I'm a big fan of being overventilated. Another thing is sexing them, you know, putting uh, burrows versus gilts pens together. It seems like gilts tend to be the more aggressive of doing it. So maybe sexing them, you know, when they come in, if they're not already pre-sexed, I think could help. We've tried putting chains on the gates just to give them something to play with. Uh, I know a guy that would put bowling balls and just like four by four pieces of lumber in his pens just to you know give them something to chew on compared to each other different things like that i'm trying to think there's something else that people used to run through the water that just even bleach i've heard of guys running bleach through the water but i i think just something to keep them occupied from chewing on each other and like i said i i think gilts are the worst at it well, some good pieces of advice. Let's go back to the pigs. What do you notice the difference between these confinement pigs and heritage pigs? I, I, to me, they're totally two different pigs that are coming across the rail. Oh, no doubt. Confinement pigs are a lot leaner by far. Those heritage pigs, outdoor raised, they, they got darker meat to them. They almost have a marbling like a beef. But... The trim loss on those is way greater because all the fat on them. I cut up some, let's see, it was a Wednesday. I was on the cup floor and uh, I was cutting an inch and a half at least worth of fat off some of their backs, which I don't know if a lot of people like all that or not, but that's what I was told to do. <laughs> it just seemed, it seems like it's a lot of waste of you put that much you know, money worth of feed into that pig. And yeah, it looks nice and fat, but you're not going to eat that fat. Those confinement pigs, they're more leaner. I think I had one Tuesday that dressed, it dressed at 290. That's, that's hanging weight. That's a big pig. 
Yeah. So that pig was probably 350 on hoof. Mm-hmm. It was a barrow. And that was a confinement pig, I believe. It, when I say confinement pig, I'm assuming so just because it was pure white. Mm-hmm. It's a traditionally raised indoor pig, slatted, you know, yes. ground yeah. feed, not really exposed to the outdoors very much. That'd be my assumption. Yes. And I bring this up because I'm just curious on your thoughts of working in the industry at different segments, growing here in Iowa, farm kid. You know, we have this debate of, you know, our consumers are really thinking this pasture-based, these heritage breeds, right? They're healthier, right? They're more sustainable. But and when we look at what you talked about, lean meat percentage and protein production, or really, you know, the traditional method of more of a commercially raised or confinement type pig, as, as we call them, would be the more sustainable animal. We also have a lot of push in the U.S. for grants and funding to for lockers like yours to expand and build new ones. And where do you think the swine industry is going in your mind with this experience with the consumer demands, the regulatory issues we have, and this debate between consumers of what they feel is is the best option to raise pigs? I, who. I didn't want to put you on the spot, but I'm I'm curious to hear it from your perspective. I, I I think the big players in the game, I think they want to keep it going the way it is, because a majority of that meat's going to China, it's going to Russia. I know the company that I grew for, a lot of their meat went to Japan. As long as they're meeting those countries' standards on withdrawal times in the meat. I think they're going to try to pump it out as many pigs out the way they're doing it. As far as small town Iowa, I think that the small blockers are thriving big time. I think people around here like that older pasture raised pork heritage breeds. That's kind of the way I see it here. Now you go to East West Coast, those people might be thriving on, oh, we got. Berkshire pork, you know, at a fancy restaurant. Mm -hmm. That's awesome. But there's no big packers that are going to specialize in that. I know there's like Neiman Ranch. I know that's a big one. I think most of their meat goes to the West Coast, California, stuff like that. But I mean, it's very limited. And actually, that might be a market a guy could get into and probably make some good money, but it's like raising organic crops, you know, like you're, you're going to spend more to get more. And it's like, is it worth it? Is it not worth it? Mm -hmm. As long as China's want to buy your pork at the way we're doing it, I see these big guys just staying the way they are. Well, I love to hear that basically what I got from your response is I think our industry is going to stay diversified and there may be even more opportunity for, as I'm going to call it, more homesteading, backyard farmers, small producers to get back into the industry based on different consumer demands. And I hope that happens. I mean, diversity is good for any sort of business. And it sounds like it's also helping revitalize and build businesses back in small town USA. Right. Yeah, that, that's pretty cool. My girlfriend, this 
she worked on a locker previous to locker I worked with her at. So she's a this is the third locker she's worked at. And they've all been communities that there are no stop, you know, no stoplights. There's a Casey's general store, and that's it. And then a locker. Like there's a co-op, a locker, a convenience store, no stoplights. And these small towns thrive off it. They absolutely love it. They support it. We have customers every day that live just down the block. They walk over because there's no grocery store in town. Mm -hmm. I mean, people love it. And that's where we get a lot of our retail business. We sell whole chickens. We sell bison. We sell elk. We sell all sorts of fish, cheese from a local dairy. I mean, deli ham, deli, we slice it right behind the counter. And these people, they absolutely jump all over it. So there's still a need for that service, right? That that old style butcher versus just the prepackaged meats. Absolutely. And they love it when they walk into and they see us there actually not on the slaughter side. We keep that kind of separate because that might be mm-hmm. people don't want to see that. But I mean, sitting there cutting up a T-bone or, you know, a ribeye on a bandsaw right, right there in front of them, wrap it up, give it to them. They People enjoy that. Yeah. And so just to explain to our audience who may not be familiar with the regulations in the U.S., depending on the state and your inspections. So like the I can speak from the state of Kansas, for instance, it Kansas has their own state meat inspectors with that. They're allowed to sell within state lines. Like I said, I don't know every law or I don't know Iowa's law, but if it's not USDA inspected at slaughter, you cannot cross state lines or can't, in some cases, can't be resold. So a lot of the work on the slaughter end is custom butchering that goes to the owner of that animal. But it sounds like you're also thriving more so, not just on that, the harder work of the slaughter, but really retail cuts and going back to the more service-oriented, seeing a face with my product versus this push of, I don't, Walmart walks into my house and puts my groceries in the fridge approach so i don't know the exact law i know we have i stamp them every day they're so they're iowa inspected custom meat days that we do some retail meat because we do have some customers that bring in beef pork that they want it to resell on their own and those have to be inspected by the federal usda Mm -hmm. inspector and then they take them, they package them on their own. And I don't know about Arkansas, but I was big uh, farmer's markets. They'll go sell their own meat. We process it for them. And then they go sell it under their own name. And, and that's Peter, you. Yeah. Same here. Peter, USDA inspected. Yeah. yeah. And our inspectors are cool. I know them first name. I just gave my own sweet corn the other day, but uh, they're cool. But I know. Most of our retail that we get, I'd say at least 75% of the retail we do is stuff that we have purchased that has already been USD inspected. Mm -hmm. So it shows up in a box. We take it out of the plastic wrapping and then we cut it ourselves. So that meat has already been 
USD inspected. And then we sell it on our retail side of the store. Well, this is great information. I really appreciate your time, Ben. I think you covered a broad spectrum. A lot of times we focus on sows and everybody likes to talk about sow farm issues. And so I'm trying to diversify and having grow finish and even, you know, meat type of stuff. And this is either another segment of our industry. But before we go, I always give my guests the opportunity to turn the table and you can ask me a question or it's your opportunity to leave us with any last minute thoughts. So I was kind of wondering, I we kind of touched on it, but what's the best advice to expose people, you know, explain to them how their meat gets from the farm to, like you were saying earlier, Walmart or wherever you buy your food. I'm not, I'm not seeing people like PETA or stuff like that, but. It's really hard. I think we've, as an industry, done a really great job. And I use the example of Operation Main Street. We've also seen, even in COVID times, using videos and doing virtual tours. I remember when I was younger in college, so we had a an open bio, non-biosecurity farm, basically, at Michigan State. And we'd have busloads of kids that would come in and see the pigs. They could just come in and walk in anytime they want. And I think still having that open access policy, obviously we have to do biosecurity, but I think we take that a little too extreme to where some of these people aren't around other pigs, and yet we could do more to bring them into our facilities. We can show them, you know, kind of what we do. We could even learn from them. Um, I think that's important, like just to have that open door policy with the extent that we do have to monitor our biosecurity and and take that seriously. You know, there's a part of our industry that you work in now that the, you know, the butchering side, the, 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 you know, let's just put it, it's killing, right? We, we euthanize or we have to kill our animals and that's not a pretty side of our industry. And, you know, you look at a lot of people who say what we do and, and that's part of the problem, I think that, you know, that gets our activists after it because death is not pretty in any shape or any type of death. It is death. And, and, you know, I think that's the biggest hurdle we have with the people who are against us is that. But, you know, we don't get people in our barns to explain it enough because, you know, they say pictures worth a thousand words and we have videos now, but it's still not like being in there working with these people so can we do something to to where we give them opportunities to come work with us for a day and there you know I raised pigs outdoors growing up and I've raised pigs indoors and you know my dad say he there's a lot of aspects he loves about raising pigs indoors there's a lot of aspects he loved raising pigs outdoors and you know, I think we're in that dilemma now that you talked about having the right ventilation, uh, using technology to really monitor that. If we created a, a healthy environment that pigs thrive in and the people like working in, you know, it's great to showcase that. But yet we're still afraid that, you know, our consumers want transparency. And I think that's even though you still don't know where that pork or that beef came from on the retail side, they still are seeing you that trust to say, hey, my local people that live next door to me is cutting this up. I'm keeping my money in the community. And I don't think we do enough of that to showcase, you know, we finally put economics and dollars to how much the pork industry is worth to the GDP. And, you know, I, I still don't think we do enough to say, hey, this is part of our community. This is who we are building that 
that community trust and and thriving on that. You know, we've switched to a lot of foreign labor or, or immigrant labor because we don't have enough people to work. And that's created problems in our communities, you know, because not all communities have embraced that diversity or those changes. We don't have the resources to accommodate these families in rural America. And so just the dynamics and that trust factor, that transparency, I think we need to get it back. I think we need to go back to what you're talking about, this revival of the community. And really, like, we all need to be in it together. We all need to be supporting each other. And, you know, if the pandemic hasn't changed anything, we have city people moving to rural America. So they are going to be living next to you soon because as Wi-Fi improves and Internet, you know, and this work from home, live anywhere. I know people are dying to go into the country and get five acres. So maybe the next big push will be Iowa. And so are we ready for that? And how do we create a program when these people do come into our community? our communities and revitalize our small towns. Like, what do we do? We have to have a program ready to do that. I think you're always going to have your activists. I love hearing the fact there's still a need for diversity um, in our pork market from somebody like you who has lived it and worked it in different segments. And I think it's just how do we, you know, create a, a program that we can explain what we do but also realize that we may have to make some accommodations for our new neighbors and our new consumers and be more open to that versus fighting it all the time. Nailed it. Well, thank you, Ben. It was a pleasure to have you on The Real P3. I enjoyed it. Before we go, I know not many of you may agree with me, but I thought Ben's insights to what it's like to be on the wean to finish side of things, taking care of pigs, and the burnout he faced was very insightful. He gave us some great pointers of getting pigs off to a good start and understanding when things go wrong. But also I really enjoyed the commentary and the discussions around the resurgence of custom meat processing and bringing vitality and life back to our rural communities. And as always, if you get a chance today, hug a pig for me.